Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the UBS Family Office Solutions Group Insights Podcast Series. In this series, we share with you timely and relevant content gathered from working with the world's largest families. My name is Alexa Pavlitz, and I am an Associate Director in the UBS Family Office Solutions Group. The Family Office Solutions Group is a dedicated team of specialists who work with our private wealth advisors to deliver holistic advice exclusively to ultra-high net worth families and family offices. If you have not already worked with our team, I encourage you to reach out to your private wealth advisor to learn more about the resources and capabilities available to you, which include income tax advisory, family office advisory, philanthropy services, and more related to your financial and lifestyle assets. Our host for today's episode is Brian Fermento, a senior member of the Family Office Solutions and Portfolio Advisory Groups at UBS. Brian articulates and delivers comprehensive, research-driven asset allocation and portfolio strategy advice to our private wealth advisors and their ultra-high net worth clients. He works exclusively with families that have a net worth of $100 million or greater within the U.S. We're also joined today by Craig Thrasher, a portfolio manager and senior research analyst at Virtus Investment Partners. Brian and Craig will share some thoughts on the international small cap space today, including actionable ideas for investors. With that, I will hand it over to Brian. Thank you for joining today with the Virtus International Small Cap Strategy. With me today, I have Craig Thrasher, who is the CoPM and Senior Research Analyst at Kane Anderson and Rudnick, which is the sub-advisor of the Virtus Strategy. Craig has been with Kane since 2008. He's a CFA. He earned his BS degree in business and public administration, the core in finance from the University of Arizona, and also has an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth uh, Graduate School of Business. Many of you may know or may be aware that Kane is one of our select advisors on the domestic side, and their strategy is one that seeks to own protected proprietary businesses that generate exceptional returns on shareholder capital without employing big debt. And one of the things that we like about them is their ability to weather drawdowns extraordinarily well. But today we're going to talk about the international small cap strategy. Craig, thank you for agreeing to uh, join us today for a, a chat on the strategy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to, happy to be here. I know that um, just recently, actually, the strategy has changed somewhat, although it won't stray too far from its original mandate. And maybe you could take a few moments just to kind of talk about incorporating some mid-cap names into the strategy, which will, I guess, now be listed as a SMID strategy going forward. Yeah, we don't think there's going to be any significant changes to to the strategy. Um, we we just changed the name from, from international small cap to international SMID cap. And if you look at the category, the mutual fund category, as far as Morningstar is concerned, there's really... There is no distinction between small and SMID. It's all one international SMID category, international um, SMID value or SMID growth. So there's going to be no changes as, as it relates to the category. And really one of the primary uh, benefits for us with the name changes, we've been managing this strategy now for, um, let's call it 10 years. And we've, we've held some companies that we bought that, you know, two billion or below in market cap, and they've done extremely well over time, and they're getting up in the market cap range, seven, eight billion. The companies are still performing performing well, and and you know, with a small cap mandate, we would eventually have to sell some of those companies just due to market cap, and 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 we just wanted number one the ability to continue to hold on to those winners and let them uh, continue to compound in our portfolio, um, and also just have a little bit more flexibility to look at some uh, larger market cap names in addition to the same companies that we've had in the past. So we're, we're, we're looking to find the same kinds of companies that we always have, that we always have, 
Um, we're looking for the same time of qualitative characteristics, and we think there's not going to be any real significant change in terms of performance or characteristics of the portfolio or anything like that. I guess the one one impact we could see, maybe the average market cap of the portfolio drift a little higher. Um, do you see it being much different than it is today? I think it's around, what, about three, three and a half billion is the average market cap today? We don't expect it's going to change dramatically. Like I said, it just gives us a little bit more flexibility. The market cap in the benchmark is a little bit higher, so we have more, a little bit more flexibility. But, um, you know, I think the benchmark average market cap is about 1.1 uh, in small cap. It's about 1.8 in the mid cap range. That's median. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, the weighted average is a little higher, but I think the relative difference is about the same, so um, it's just a, a little bit higher in terms of market cap. Why don't we just kind of just start digging in, and I guess one of the things that we've been touting at UBS is really to focus on international small cap as a way of gaining <clears throat> good diversification and um, also um, lowering our volatility for our international exposure. And I think it would be helpful maybe if you give us a little color to describe the uniqueness around international small cap and now SMID um, and sort of that opportunity set. Yeah, sure. So that, there's a lot of things that I, I like about international small cap and we like at Kane about it, the international small cap opportunity set. Uh, one of them is just that off the top, it's a really inefficient market. So that's, we've, as you mentioned up, up top, we've been focusing and, and, and really the bread and butter of our business for, for decades now has been in the U.S. small cap space. And the things that we like about small caps is, is unlike large caps, we have a really large universe and we have a really wide range in terms of the quality of the underlying companies within that universe. So you, in, in, in small caps, you have companies that are going to do well and, and you have many companies that aren't going to be around five, ten years from now. So there's a real opportunity for us to add value with, with finding a select group of exceptional small cap franchises to invest in for the long term. And the other thing we like about small caps is it's just less efficient. There's fewer people following each company. And as we go into the to the international small cap space, we see all of those things that we like about domestic small caps uh, exist to an even greater degree on the international side. So the universe is even bigger and there's just fewer analysts following each company even relative to the U.S. small cap market. So we like that. And as you mentioned, um, it, it is a great diversifier. I think most people realize the benefits of, of diversifying across the cap ranges within their domestic portfolio and have some dedicated uh, investments within small caps. But as they've diversified internationally, invariably, whether it's EM or developed markets, invariably people have invested in, in typically very large or mega cap um, type of companies. And, and we think that there's a lot of opportunity within this international small cap space to get increased diversification and also really, I think, uh, exposure to more dynamic companies that have the opportunity to grow faster than some of their large cap brethren in the international markets. And so given that lack of analyst coverage, um, it would be helpful to discuss a little bit about your process in identifying companies that you want to research, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the investment process on how things find their way into the portfolio. Yes, yeah, so there's a number of ways that we can we can go about identifying companies. One efficient way of attacking a large universe like this is is screening. Um, so obviously, if we're, we're looking for high-quality companies, you mentioned some of the metrics that we're going to be looking for. What kind of returns on invested capital does the company generate over, an, over a, a cycle? 
how, how strong is the balance sheet, how consistent are their earnings over time, how does cash flow compare to earnings. We look we like companies that generate high free cash flow relative to earnings. So so we can we can narrow that universe down pretty quickly through through just some simple screens like that. Um, but that that's really just one tool. We're we're also traveling a lot overseas, obviously pre-COVID, um, going to conferences, talking to a lot of management teams, asking a lot of questions. Um, we're also trying to leverage our experience on the domestic side. As I said, we've been investing and focusing on small caps for a long time here, and we think we've we've identified some some businesses that we believe are durable and and, and have the ability to generate strong shareholder returns over a long period of time so we'll we'll go around the world and try to find similar companies in other markets and and hopefully try to benefit from those same favorable economics any particular balance sheet metrics that you tend to return to over and over again as you identify these companies i mean obviously um return on capital and low debt is obviously quite key to your process but anything else you kind of look look for sort of the tools of the trade well, I think, you know, the financial characteristics are important, and, and we are looking for high returns on invested capital. We are looking for companies that don't employ significant leverage and have strong free cash flow. But really, for us, that's just a starting point. For us, it, it's much more important to dive into the company and, and figure out what it is about the qualitative, qualitative side of the business that's allowing them to generate those financials. I mean, if it's just something that um, anybody can do and, and the company's growing and generating high returns, then they're going to invariably face competition and, and those positive financial characteristics are going to go away over time. What we're looking for is what is it unique about this business um, that's going to allow them in the face of, of, of competition over time to continue to thrive. And so that's where we spend the bulk of our time um, is looking at other companies within the industry, within the markets that they're playing in, we look at other how that industry has played out over over many years in other markets, and again, sometimes leveraging our experience on the domestic side. So, really, the qualitative part of the process is, is really the most important part for us. Um, I noticed in some of your marketing materials, you had mentioned, or not you specifically, but the materials had mentioned that um, look for out of favor stocks. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Like, what does that mean to you, to you and the team? Is that really just looking at quality at a reasonable price and something more involved in that? Obviously, we're we're looking for great businesses, and 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 a lot of people are looking for a lot of the same things that we're looking for. So the question is, how do you how do you identify those types of companies and and not have to overpay for them? And one of the tools that we have is we like to identify companies um, that are just great businesses but maybe aren't trading at valuations that we find attractive currently and we wait for something to happen where there's some cyclical concerns uh, within the industry or or maybe obviously last year we saw a situation with COVID where, where we saw some businesses that we had been tracking for some time that we really liked qualitatively but um, but the, the valuations we didn't find attractive and then um, with the impact of COVID, the, the near-term outlook turned turned uh, uncertain at best, and, and maybe certainly bad in the near term. And it allowed us to find attractive entry points on on really great franchises that just happened to have a near-term outlook that was was not positive. Right, and I noticed that um, at least at least in the, the, the last last quarter of the report, that a pretty good large. A pretty good size allocation to industrials. Is that kind of playing on sort of that cyclical play? Um, on were you seeing value in the market today? 
In some cases, that's the case. I mean, one of the businesses that I mentioned that that we had identified previously and, and entered into um, shortly after the onset of COVID is a company called CAE, um, which is the largest company globally in flight simulation equipment and training. Um, it's a phenomenal business that that has a lot of long-term tailwinds behind them that they're benefiting from. Um, but but obviously, with travel coming to a halt in the near term, there was going to be less pilots that needed to go in for training, you know, their periodic training was, was going to be extended out. And so it did have a negative impact on their fundamentals. And we did in, uh, initiate a position in, in CAE, and that happens to be an industrial. But I would say we also own a number of industrial companies that aren't what I would consider typical industrials. And, and some of these MSCI categorizations in terms of sector can just be somewhat arbitrary. So we own a couple of credit bureaus, for example, um, these are relatively stable businesses. Anento, which we've owned for many years, uh, is the largest credit bureau in Finland, and they've literally never had a down year of revenues, even going back to prior to 2008, the global financial crisis, the pandemic. Their their revenues have been up every single year. So I think that's not necessarily what people would think of as a typical uh, industrial company. So it's a little bit of a mix there. Some, some of the uh, exposure we have there is somewhat opportunistic, and some of them are just companies that happen to be considered industrials that are really more uh, consistent growers over time. Maybe uh, we could talk a little bit about um, geographic diversification um, and how you kind of build the portfolio from that perspective. Well, we d- it is important for us to, to have geographic diversification. We don't want to make significant bets on any one co- country and, and have that drive the performance of our portfolio. Um, but once we meet that diversification requirement, it's, it, we, we really prefer to let our best ideas drive where our, where our shareholders' capital is invested. Um, and I guess currently one, uh, some, some examples of that would be we're, we're significantly overweight in the United Kingdom right now and, and we're significantly underweight in Japan. And, and I should point out that that's a situation that's 180 degrees reversed from where we were uh, let's say in 2012, 2013, um, where we we found a lot of opportunities to buy quality companies at, at attractive prices in Japan prior to Abenomics, um, and and not so much in the UK. But if you fast forward now, after years of of quantitative easing, you have the Japanese central bank actually in the market buying significant amounts of stock on a regular basis and, and, and people feeling the need and compelled to, to own Japanese stocks for that reason, um, we, we feel like now there's a little bit of a supply-demand imbalance in Japan. I mean, while there are quality companies there, the overall economic backdrop is not particularly great. You have uh, you know declining population, pretty stagnant GDP overall, and, and, and overall fairly poor corporate governance. So it's it's an area where you can find good stocks, but there's not that many, and our peers feel compelled to buy, I guess, whatever is the best that they can find within Japan. And so invariably, when we find something there that we like, we have to pay more than what we would have to pay, say, in the U.K., where after years of uncertainty relating to Brexit, you know, you, you tend to see much more attractive valuations and much better corporate governance, uh, apples to apples. And so so we've we've had a natural drift where our capital is has gone more towards the UK, but we do want to still maintain a, a highly diversified portfolio, and we're invested in, I think, over 15 countries right now and, and a number of different sectors. So as long as we meet that diversification requirement, we just want to have our, our capital go where we're seeing the best ideas at any given time. 
And I know by prospectus, if I'm going to have exposure to emerging markets, and uh, I know that actually um, your partner, Hong Kim, actually runs an EM small small cap strategy as well. Um, where are you finding opportunities in that part of the market? And maybe you could share this, how much exposure you currently have. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons on international small cap that we wanted the opportunity to go into emerging markets is we just we didn't want these arbit- again arbitrary distinctions to determine where where we're allocating capital. We wanted to look at the small cap market around the world. Um, some people might consider Korea an emerging market. Some people might consider Poland emerging markets, whereas other index providers don't consider it. And, and again, we don't want that to be driving our capital allocation decisions. So. Um, we want to go wherever we can, and, and we find opportunities in those markets as well as other emerging markets at times, and it's really sporadic. Um, we do tend to own an eclectic group of companies. Some of them exist in emerging markets that, you know, right now and for some time. The largest position in both of our portfolios is a company called Headhunter in Russia. Uh, we participated in the IPO a couple of years ago. We're the largest shareholder of Headhunter. We love the competitive position of the business. It's the largest job board. In Russia, um, the financial characteristics of the business are phenomenal. They have 40% plus operating profit margins that continue to increase every year. Um, top line growing over 20% every year in U.S. dollar terms. And so it's a really phenomenal business. It just happens to reside in Russia. And, you know, if, if, if that's where we're finding an, our best idea at any given time, then that's where we're going to invest. In. So I guess this probably brings us to a good point to maybe talk about sell discipline and turnover in the portfolio. Um, certainly you'll have some opportunities to hang on to some companies longer, which I think should should burnish performance, I would think. I would expect that to help performance overall. But um, when, when you're thinking about liquidating a position, maybe you could walk us through that thought process. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, we are, all of our portfolios across the board at Kane we we tend to have very low turnover. We've been managing this portfolio, as I said, for about 10 years, and there's there are several positions that we've owned for the since the inception of the strategy. So, so really, our overarching philosophy, a core part of that, is to buy businesses at fair valuations or, or hopefully better in, in our in our initial um, purchase, and then allow the the business results to drive our investment results over time. And that that tends to lead to relatively low turnover. Obviously, we do have some turnover. The most important consideration there, obviously, is the is the quality of the business, the the, the, the fundamentals. If there's if there's some industry changes that cause us to question whether the long term future of the business is going to be as good as the past, and um, you know we can't answer those questions to our satisfaction, then we're going to move on to to higher conviction ideas. And so that's that's really the primary reason that we want to sell positions. Obviously, valuation is going to play somewhat of a factor and we want to have our, our highest weight positions in, in companies where the valuations are more attractive. But we've looked over time and you know it's pretty hard to add value trimming and, and increasing positions based on valuation. And so that's something where we're less dogmatic, where we really want to pay the most attention to and where we're we're laser focused every time a company reports is are there any changes um, for the better or for the worse. And if there's something that's happening for the worse on a competitive front, we want to act quickly in those situations. Anything else you'd like to mention or think we we should be aware of this, for the strategy? No, I mean, I think we've covered on some of the key, the key points. I, I guess I would just emphasize 
that I think that the opportunity set with international small cap, um, just just going down if you're if if you have some international exposure in the developed markets in the large cap space, um, we we've seen historically that if you just move from large cap to small cap because you own more dynamic companies that you're picking up a couple percentage points in performance, um, just moving index to index into the smaller cap part of the market. And some of these large markets that we've talked about, like Japan, you know, the markets overall aren't growing that, that much. And so if you own large cap companies in that market, you tend to own companies that aren't really growing over time. If you go into the small cap space, you have opportunity to, to uh, to, to own companies that have a much better growth profile. And again, this is just comparing index to index. But as we mentioned up front, we also think that there's an, a lot of opportunity to add value through bottom-up research and finding truly exceptional small-cap companies and, and letting those you know, owning those businesses over the long term and letting that drive your investment performance over time. We think really, um, if you do believe in diversification, which I think a lot of us do, Owning these great franchises within the small cap part of the international market, we think, is a, is a much better way to do it um, than buying large cap, ben- either benchmark or active management within the long, uh, the large cap part of the market. We certainly agree with that view. We've, we've been discussing with clients really since early fall of last year, very much focused on size rotation from large cap to small cap. Just given the liquidity in the system and economies coming back after COVID, setting up for a, a good opportunity to be invested in the space. So, and also we're very focused on portfolios like yours for other segments as well, being bottom up and being concentrated. We find that those managers like yourselves create great alpha by having allowing tracking error versus the benchmark to have just good all-around performance. So we thank you for all your efforts. And I think maybe we'll leave it at that. Craig, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC. International investments involve considerations and potential risks not typically associated with domestic securities, including risks associated with changes in currency values, economic, political, and social conditions, loss of market liquidity, the regulatory environment of the countries which a fund invests, and difficulties in receiving current or accurate information. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities 
was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned.